Say your princess Margaret and your wild friend offers you a plot of land on a hard to reach and undeveloped island in the Caribbean filled with mosquitoes. What do you do? You say yes. We know Margaret said yes. And I think I'd do the same, I guess. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I like your line of reasoning. Margaret did say yes. And thus she began her lifelong association with the party paradise known as Mustique. Like I've always said, nothing good can happen when you gather these people on an island. But Margaret's whole life did seem like a party paradise. Hashtag goals. <laughs> I'm Eva Walchover. And I'm Allie Miriam. And this is the season one finale of Windsors and Losers, our royal history podcast that unearths a forgotten and fun story from the royal family vault in every episode. Let's talk about what we'll talk about first. How the heck did Margaret get to Mystique in the first place? And second, what did she get up to during her decades visiting this lovely hideaway? And number three, the denouement and Mystique today. And what happened to her house? There's a lot to get into here. So without further ado, Margaret and Mystique. So part one, how did this English rose end up with her own house on an undeveloped island in the middle of the Caribbean? Well, Margaret was first introduced to Mustique when she was on her six-week-long honeymoon following her wedding to Anthony Armstrong Jones, a.k.a. Lord Snowden. So there, as one does, spending a month and a half on the royal yacht. Yeah, this was a standard honeymoon vacation. It was just they brought out the royal yacht and sent the newlyweds off on their merry way. Which is like, nice work if you can get it. So Margaret has this friend named Colin Tennant, who is like a party guy around town in London. And he just bought Mustique for 45,000 pounds. And what, where is Mustique? You may ask quite rationally, as I myself did. It's a small island, only three miles long and one and a half miles wide, located 100 miles west of Barbados. And is part of the chain of islands called the Grenadines. So it's not easy to get to. To this day, it's not easy to get to. And one royal biographer named Christopher Warwick sort of editorialized about that when Margaret saw it. He says, quote, Mystique was no more than 1,250 inhospitable acres of thorn-cloaked scrubland inhabited by giant mosquitoes, a few wild cows, and a tiny community of fishermen and cotton growers. And so I guess the plan was, I mean, what was the plan for Colin Tennant? Why did he buy this island? Other than it's far away from everything and maybe no one would know what he was getting up to there. <laughs> away from the prying eyes of the Fleet Street press. Well, he basically wanted to create an exclusive colony of fancy houses that he would sell to rich buyers. So he married a woman named Anne Cook, who was from a well-to-do, well-established English family. And in fact, she had been a maid of honor at the Queen's coronation, we should note. Very connected. Well, Anne is kind of like an icon of royal reportage at the moment because she has written a book called Lady in Waiting, where she kind of tells more details than one usually does about her life with the royals. And so she recounted the first night that Margaret arrived and she said that somebody from the yacht came over and asked her and Colin to come over for dinner. And they basically said like, we'd love to, but we haven't had a bath in weeks. So they went back to the boat, took a bath and uh, then had dinner with Margot and Tony as he was called. I think we should also back up a sec and just establish who is Colin Tennant because where did this guy get 45,000 pounds to by Mustique. Definitely. In, the, in 1950s money, that was a lot. Okay, so who the hell is Colin Tennant? <laughs> Where do we even begin? <laughs> yeah. I feel like Colin's own family is asking, who is Colin Tennant? Yes. He's the son of the second Baron Glen Connor. He went to Eton. He served in the British Army. His family was very, very rich. 
but they had made their money in bleach and then became extremely wealthy. He married Anne and her father, to put it in Anne's words, says, quote, our family has been established in the 15th century, springing from fortunes in law and then land. The tenant family had made its, albeit vast fortune, through the invention of bleach in the Industrial Revolution. They were nouveau riches. That's basically what her dad thought. The parents didn't like Colin. Both of Anne's parents warned her against marrying Colin, probably partially because of the classism, but also because Colin had this wild temper and he was known to just have these uncontrollable rages and freakouts. Yeah. I want to read this quote from this magazine called The Rake. Perfect title. And on that note, on his legendary tantrums. His tantrums were, quote, seizure-like in their sudden arrival and ferocity. According to the writer Ian Jack, they could be triggered by anything from tardy service, once kept waiting for a drink at a bar in St. Lucia, he threw all the tables and chairs over the balcony into the sea, to a simple failure to get his own way. When he was refused a flight upgrade to join Princess Margaret in first class, he lay in the fetal position in the economy aisle and wailed and screamed until he was manhandled off the plane. British Airways subsequently banned him for life. I like that there was a consequence to that last tantrum. Yeah, that's a really good point because I don't think <laughs> elsewhere in his life he suffered many consequences. No. Anne basically wrote about how she was his fixer for many years until one of their children became ill and she didn't do it anymore. Then he found somebody else to handle his tantrums, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so Colin, having inherited all this wealth, was in a financial position to buy an island. He had had like a family interest in the area previously and he brought Anne to the island after he bought it, and she looked at him and said, this is sheer madness. And then in her words, uh, he turned to her and said, you mark my words, Anne. I will make Mustique a household name. And he, he kind of right. did. Yeah, it seemed like the folly of a rich man that couldn't end in anything good, and yet it did become a total paradise playground. So let, let's talk about Anne, too, because you touched on how her family, the Cokes, were like money from sort of an old lineage and her her family had a lot of royal associations, and she was the oldest child in a family with the great estate, but because she was a girl, she wasn't going to inherit any of it. So I think that was part of why she was looking to make a marriage that could keep her in the manner to which she was accustomed. And fun fact, she was at one point engaged to Diana's dad, Johnny Spencer, but he dumped her after somebody told him that she had mad blood. <laughs> she really picked some some winners here. Yes. So she wrote this book, Lady in Waiting, and has another one coming out. I happened to open up a recent New Yorker where there was an interview with her about her second book. And basically, this second book is going to go into more details about her relationship with Colin than she wrote in the first one. In the second, she actually gets into the fact that he was abusive and that she was a survivor of domestic violence. So it paints their marriage in a whole new devastating light. Yeah. The first book makes it seem pretty horrific. You know, for example, one thing we learned from the first book is that as a newlywed couple in Paris, he took her to a brothel. And I think that that to me was a detail that stood out because it seemed like for years, a lot of his behavior was to sort of shock and make people around him feel uncomfortable. And that clearly extended to his new young bride as well. He saved sort of one of the worst gestures for last because he had this sort of companion and like no implication that it was sexual. No one has ever like established that, but he had this 
younger man in St. Lucia named Kent, who was living with him and helping him run his affairs because after Colin's old mystique, he moved to St. Lucia, yada, yada, yada. He left his entire estate to Kent. And to make matters even worse, Kent auctioned a lot of the family belongings shortly after Colin's death. So Anne had to go bid on some of her own stuff to buy it back. So horrible. Yeah, it's like there was just a a streak of just real viciousness. It almost feels spiteful. So these were two of Margaret's best friends. Uh, but at the beginning, when Margot and Tony pulled up at Mustique, one person who was not on board with like having Mustique as a part of his long-term planning was Margot's new husband. Tony was just not a fan of Colin. And the mistrust between Tony and Colin and Anne goes back to Colin and Anne's wedding, where Antony had been hired to be the wedding photographer, but Anne's father called him Tony Snapshot, and that really pissed him off. He like held a grudge about that his whole life. And uh, Anne wrote in her book that Tony called Mustique, Mustique. <laughs> and after that first visit, he never set foot on Mustique again. So it really became an escape for Margaret from many things, but also from her own marriage, which was not a happy one. Exactly. On that point about, about his nickname, Tony Snapshot, I feel like it was true then and it's true today. There's nothing crueler than an aristocratic nickname for someone that they see as beneath them. It's like, it's that belittling quality. I'm thinking of even how like when William and Kate were newly dating and people called her. Wavy Katie. Yeah. But also what was, what did they call her mom? Like doors to manual. Doors to manual. It's like so snooty. And it's not like um, Anthony had just fallen off the apple tree. Like his family was pretty well connected to, or apple cart, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So that first night, Colin and Anne are having dinner with Margaret and Tony. And Colin seizes the moment and says, ma'am, we haven't gotten you a wedding present. Would you like something in a tiny box or a plot of land? And Margaret, without even waiting for Tony's input, just says, a plot of land. So (laughs) that's what set this whole thing in motion. If she'd said tiny box, I wonder what it would have been. What kind of jewel? (laughs) It probably would have been a nice big jewel. Mm-hmm, a brooch. This brings us to part two, the allure of Mystique, a.k.a. the building of her home, what she did there. Oh, and that one time she was papped with her boyfriend and had to get a divorce. But we'll get to that. <laughs> so she first went to Mystique in 1960 on her honeymoon. Then Years pass. She allegedly has this land, but not a lot's happening on Mustique. But by 1968, her marriage really isn't going well. So she's probably thinking like, oh, I could use like a little hideaway where I can escape my husband. She follows up with Colin and the land. And he says, yeah, it's still yours. And she says, and does it come with a house? This is all (laughs) according to Anne, because obviously we were not there. So she goes down to Mustique, rendezvous with Anne and Colin, and they pick a plot Basically, Margaret got one of the choicest pieces of land on Mystique, which, fair enough, she's a princess. So on this little private peninsula on the southern tip of the island. What if they'd been like, no, sorry, Margaret, that that plot's gone. Nope, already sold that. (laughs) (laughs) You waited too long. You waited eight years. (laughs) I, I think Colin wanted to give her a good one because of the associations Margaret being on the island would be. He was, if nothing, a shrewd marketer. So he knew if Margot built a house, the others would come. Uh, When she's there, she's pretty low-key, considering what we know about Princess Margaret. Like, she showers like they do under a tree with a rigged-up bucket. And she enlists her husband Tony's uncle, this fellow named Oliver Messel, to 
designed the house. Now, Messel is a renowned stage designer with like a flair for design. So the house he designs ends up being slightly more expensive than Colin bargained for, but he still paid for it. And the result was a home called Les Jolies, the beautiful waters. Um, Another fun thing from the Margot Oliver collab was the development of this iconic hue called Messel Green, which is this sort of like sea foam pastel green that kind of minty. Yes, minty. Like the minute you see it, you you think like Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And um, that was sort of immortalized by his work yeah. on Mustique. To the extent that you can invent a color. You go to Mustique, not that I've ever been or will ever go. But a lot of the homes feature this color. Yeah, just fun fact. While, while researching this, I was looking at what it takes to get to Mystique. And well, first, it takes a lot of money. You can't fly there direct. There's like, you can fly to a nearby big island and you have to take a jet chartered through the Mystique company. It's a lot. Which is why I guess Mystique has this mystique. Yes, exactly. Because it is hard to get to and hard to get to places can maintain their exclusivity for a little bit longer because most people can't afford to get there. 100%. And it also means that people can get up to real shenanigans when they're that cut off, but more on that later. So I love this detail about Messel Green because it's, I don't know, there's something so atmospheric about a color becoming associated with a place. And when you look at pictures of Mustique, it's just homes have shutters in this color or their walls are this color. It is everywhere. And I guess it's now been sort of marketed, you know, paint companies will sell Messel Green as a shade. And then normal people like us can try to live out our fantasy by maybe painting like a sad little New York apartment room in (laughs) Messel Green. Or a side table. Okay, so what did they create? So she has this five-bedroom house, two swimming pools, an infinity pool and a plunge pool because don't bother building a house in Mystique unless you can afford a plunge pool. Um, a little outdoor gazebo. Actually, I have the link here if we want to just check it out because yeah. it is available for it. rent, actually, where you can pay 33 k to 45 k a week before hefty fees of at least 20% to rent the house. And I don't think it's Margaret's furniture anymore, but uh, it's beautiful. It opens up right onto this bay. The water is so blue. The the setting is beautiful, but mm-hmm. the home is stunning as well. Yeah, I feel like, though, they've really updated it and made it sort of like the island look of today. It's lost some of its color. Yes, it's like the coastal living equivalent of what have you. It's a Nancy Myers version of island living rather than late 60s, early 70s over the top color. I like to imagine English chintz in the Margaret version, but right now it is very much like if you're spending $45,000 on this rental, you just want it to look nice. And this looks very nice, but there are Mm -hmm. some splashes of messel green on like, you know, a footstool at the end of the bed or a a window treatment. Yeah, I guess I'd stay there. Yeah, I would definitely swim in that pool. So Margaret was pleased with the end result as well. She had a bunch of furniture shipped over in a shipping container. And once it was done, she started spending two vacations a year there. Two out of like how many? How many vacations did she average a year? Yeah, it was just like one of her spots along her 365 day a year progress. Truly. Okay, so what did they do there? Basically, by the 70s, which was around about the time that the house was done, 
Margaret's going twice a year. Word begins to spread. So like a bunch of fancy rich people like Nelson Rockefeller, Bob Dylan, they're mooring their yachts offshore. Um, Other people start buying houses there. Mick Jagger, he's probably the second most famous mustique lover. He has a Japanese style villa called Stargroves. And uh, even the second generation of Jaggers are like hanging out there now. Billy Joel, David Bowie, all of these really trendy people of the time we're just hanging out and partying there. It sounds like it was Studio 54 on an island. And I guess in a way I can kind of understand it. I feel like these are all people whose lives are just so in front of the camera. And as we've already established, it's very hard to get here. And it probably was a respite and a refuge from the paparazzi. And that's an important thing to note because this was a refuge for Margaret from her failing marriage. Like both Mm -hmm. she and Tony by this time were basically living Uh separate lives and everything that that entails. There's no like insinuation at any point that Anthony Armstrong Jones was physically abusive, but definitely emotionally. Yeah. So Margaret needed to have a space where she and her kids could go and just like do their own things. And there was one quote from Anne in her book about her and Margaret talking about their husbands. And I just want to read this because it's such a great example of like stiff upper lip. But she said, um, you know, they were both having affairs and we would complain without overindulging, speaking bluntly, then brushing troubles aside. We concentrated on doing the things we enjoyed. She loves collecting shells to make tables decorated with shell tops. So together we'd come to the beach, then take them back to the house to clean them, laying them out in the sun. It's surprising how such activities can have a calming effect and divert attention from any difficulties. So if your marriage is faltering, collect shells, and do decoupage. I wonder, can one buy a Margaret piece? Can you go on eBay <laughs> and find one of her too. tables or, sh- or a tray? I hope they didn't end up in a skit when this uh, Le Jolie You got the, the uh, bougie, bougie makeover. Yeah. So Margaret basically had two speeds on Mystique. One was like lazy days with her good friend, Anne. And Anne, you know, in her book, which is basically just our, our go-to Mystique life guide uh, <laughs> and detailed that they would go to one of the beaches in the morning and swim. But there was one problem. Margaret didn't like the feeling of sand between her toes. So Colin always made sure that there were a bunch of clean towels and a bucket of water so that she could get the sand off of her toes. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I love how that is just in direct opposition to the phrase, oh, I just want to feel the sand between my toes. <laughs> <laughs> like, who put the sand here? <laughs> Anne said that Margaret loved to brush her hair and get the tangles out. And she'd comment on all the different natural highlights in Anne's hair. And this one stood out to me because it's like the most normal thing I've ever heard. Yeah, well, it's endearing. It's just like the thing with the shells and the and her making tables out of shells or decorating tables with shells. I think that they relished the opportunity to do these sort of like kind of childlike, innocent um, these small little moments that she could have away from everyone and everything and the sort of drama and strife of her family life back home. Of course, it's always on I Margaret's right. terms, though. You know, 100%. It's like her friends still had to call her ma'am, even though Margaret's brushing She was brushing her hair. hair. Yeah. <laughs> They'd have these like lazy days or there would be like a medium speed where they would have dinner parties or go to the island bar and have like sundowners. But then there were also times when Wait, Colin what are would go sundowners? all. When you have a cocktail and watch the sunset. 
I'm clearly not having enough sundowners in my life. (laughs) We got to get you to Mystique. So part of Colin's charm was his like ability to throw an epic party and just bring people together. He was like an entertainer Um, for all of his excesses and clearly terrible qualities. He he was able to just draw people together. I guess he was able to draw hedonists together sometimes. Well, yeah. And often with these people, like people who have terrible fiery tempers, that also can translate at times to just a lot of fun and crazy. I guess crazy that you don't want to personally have to live with, but you're happy to be in their orbit when you're at a legendary party on an island. I can't say I have a lot of experience with that personality (laughs) type, but I can imagine it. Uh Um, So he would have these like huge blowouts for big birthdays and his 50th was one of the most legendary. So this is what Anne says about his 50th birthday party. The 50th birthday invitation was for almost a week's worth of parties, all expenses paid, the airfare, accommodation, everything in between. Everybody stayed around the island in different houses. Then she goes on to list like all of the luminaries who were there. Um, And she says that Colin had planned every hour meticulously. The the big blowout was the finale, the golden ball. Although she says that <laughs> Colin got so stressed in the run-up that he collapsed and had to be given an injection by the doctor oh uh, to be revived for the night. Yeah, this party was crazy. First of all, it just brought together all these celebrities. Robert Maplethorpe was the party photographer. I read one quote that I thought, I mean, if you'll allow me this little intellectual exercise, but I read one quote that compared it to Henry VIII's Field of the Cloth of Gold, which was this huge sort of festival that he had in France when he was a young king. Um, And it's legendary and there are paintings of it. And it often gets written about in biographies of the Tudor era as this like event that for centuries people talked about. That's iconic. Maybe that was Colin's inspiration. Colin made sure everything was gold. The trees had been spray painted. The grass had been spray painted. They put gold glitter on the beach, which, side note, very not eco-friendly. A bunch of whales probably got Mm, glitter in their guts because of that. But um, they had, like, some of the local young men just wearing a gold-painted coconut. Yeah, I feel like that doesn't do it justice. So there's this other quote that I re- read in The Rake about this party, and it's and it describes what people were wearing. Princess Margaret sported a gold caftan and matching turban. Bianca Jagger was resplendent in a gold Scarlet O'Hara-style hooped dress with matching parasol, while Mick, Mick Jagger, in a slash shirt, cut-off jeans, and straw hat resembled a gilded Davy Crockett. The host presided in a tight satin suit laced with golden paisley whorls and starbursts, but they were all upstaged by the local boys whose oiled bodies were draped in gold tinsel cloaks accessorized with cod pieces made of gold sprayed coconut shells. Wow. Anne, meanwhile, said that she painted her face gold, but had the most terrible effect highlighting every wrinkle and crease as she spent the party trying not to smile. Pour one out for Anne. She's a woman with the patience of a saint. So... A final quote that I really feel sums up Mustique is from um, a friend and possible lover of Collins, Sam Wagstaff. He says, everyone, quote, everyone changes their clothes at least three times a day. It's the perfect place to wear your jewels. The whole thing is completely mad. I think that sounds about right. (laughs) I'd go in a heartbeat if anybody wants to invite me to their Time share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we had mentioned that Margaret was having difficulty in her marriage, and both she and Tony found consolation in the arms of others. And Margaret actually 
began a relationship with a young man named Roddy Llewellyn. And Colin and Anne played a pivotal role in this as well, because in addition, of course, to owning Mystique, they had the family seat at um, a place called Glen, not the Glen, just Glen, like their house was called Glen. Okay, my house is called Bob. <laughs> um, so they were having Princess Margaret up to Glen, which was in the Scottish borders, and uh, they didn't have enough men to like make up numbers, which just even that sounds so, so aristocrat. He was 25. Margot was 43. They hit it off right away. Uh, five months later, she invites him down to her house on Mystique, but it was a visit in 1976. They'd met in 73. That really got Margot in hot water. This was one of the seminal bad moments for Margot and Mystique. Basically, Colin had tried to keep the riffraff out by, as we've said, like only having these really expensive houses. It's hard to get to. But a tabloid photographer managed to sort of lie his way onto the island. And he took a picture of Margot in a bathing suit at the beach bar with Roddy and actually Anne's brother and his wife. But the other two were cropped out of the photo. So everyone drew their own conclusions and there was a furor. And this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and led to her separation from Snowden, who it must be said was in a serious relationship with someone else at the time. So it's not like his heart was broken. But that brings us to section three, which is about the end of an era of Margaret and Mystique and her house and the property today. So as the years go by, everybody gets older. That's what happens, right? But they're still trying to party hard. Oh, yeah. They might not be doing like paint your whole body gold and look at men with like coconuts. (laughs) (laughs) But they're having like dinner parties. And there were some bad times on Musty too. And Anne recounts an instance in 1994 when they were having a dinner party and Margaret had a stroke. And uh, there was a doctor on the island who came and took care of her, and they eventually got Margaret back to England. And editor's note, uh, around this time, Margaret gave the home to her son, David. I'm not entirely sure why. It seems to have been a wedding present. Maybe she was thinking about the fact that she was given the home for her wedding to Antony. Who knows? But David, her son takes possession of the home and he actually starts renting it out. So this, at this point, Margaret starts curtailing the frequency with which she visits Mystique, but she was there in 1998 when this terrible incident happened and she scalded her feet in the bath so badly and she was like rendered unable to move. And basically from that point on, she was in a wheelchair. Um, So she had to leave the house because it was about to be rented. And and this was so horrible. This was unfortunately, yeah, the beginning of her real final decline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just so horrible to think like agony of that. Truly. And this is like an example of how being on an island is. There's some downside. (laughs) Yeah. If you needed medical care, you had to at least get to Barbados. But Mm -hmm. uh, the queen arranged for her to return on the Concorde, like especially medically uh, kitted out Concorde. So she she did get the best of care eventually, but it was pretty traumatic. Um, By that point, Mystique had changed anyway. Colin actually sold it in 1976 to what's called the Mystique Company, which um, basically was a homeowners association and that owns the island today. But... The Margaret Cachet really paid off because he sold a ton of his plots. Nobody knows exactly how much he got when he sold the island, but definitely enough for him to spend three million pounds on a coconut farm on the neighboring island of St. Lucia, where he went on to live with his body man, Kent, and leave his family out of his will. Like so many places, you think they have these moments and then the decline starts. 
But that's not really happened with Mustique. It maintains its exclusivity. Exactly. Over the years, Queen Elizabeth and Philip visited. And then even more recently, Kate and William visited before they had kids and since they've had kids. So it still sort of retains its allure as a royal royal connection. Yeah. That's why the people fork out the big bucks. Mm-hmm, 45K mm-hmm. for a week at Les Jolies. Uh. <laughs> okay, Eva, that brings us to our Windsors and Losers questions. What does this tell you about the royal family? I think what it tells me is that, well, A... They're always being given free shit. Um, <laughs> and also that they're always seeking a place away from the public and from prying eyes. And on the one hand, I think that I sympathize with that. And then on the other hand, I think... How hard um, can it be? How hard can it be? Yeah. What are you truly escaping from? What about you, That's Allie? basically... That's my takeaway too, which is that, you know, aside from the whole Roddy photo leading to a divorce thing... If they want to get out of the public eye, they can. Who do you think was the Windsor? Reluctantly, I will say that Colin was clearly the Windsor because he's the one that walked away with the fortune, bought a coconut farm on St. Lucia with his, as you say, body man. Um, (laughs) What about you? Oliver Messel, because I don't know that much about the history of English stage design. So were it not for his association with Mystique, he would be unknown to me, which would be a great tragedy for his legacy. I think inventing a a shade of green is a pretty good legacy. I mean, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that I think it's like pretty bold to claim to invent a color when all colors already exist. But he he branded a color. That's true. And you know what? That's such classic aristocratic behavior to take what is essentially mint green. In the public domain. (laughs) Mint green and then give it the title Messel Green. Yeah. Um, Like we should just start calling something Merriam Brown. See how it goes. (laughs) <laughs> oh no, Miriam Tan. Miriam mm-hmm. Beige. Yeah, that's my new favorite color. <laughs> Allie, who do you think's the loser? I'm going to say Colin. He sounds like a real piece of work. I don't really, I'm not impressed by the development of an island. Uh, the The quality of the character matters a little more to me than the development of a hedonistic party paradise for the overindulged set. Don't you think? Very well put. I, totally. It's like Thank anyone you. can throw their money around and hire some people to build some houses. Yeah, in fact, I think if I had all that bleach money, I could even do a better job. Interesting that he wouldn't have gone for sort of an all-white aesthetic. Maybe he wanted to wake him from that bleach legacy. Uh, And who was the loser in your view? Um, I'm going to say poor Lady Anne. A, because she didn't inherit any of the fortune, and B, because she uh, maybe did some lasting damage to her skin by spray-painting it gold for for the gold party. Although, maybe it was worth it. I love Anna and I am very much looking forward to her second book. She, I do feel for her too because she didn't inherit two fortunes because she was a girl. She didn't get her family fortune. And then her jerk of a husband didn't put her in the will. So I think like her version of not inheriting the fortune is she still like lived in a pretty big house on the family estate. She just didn't get the big, big house. Yes. In the New Yorker article, she talked about how she was invited to dinner at nearby Sandringham and she was seated next to King Charles. So I feel like her things life are, is okay. It's yeah. a mixed bag. <laughs> Eva, it's been incredible working on this first season and let's do it again, season two. I know we have some big ideas, so we'll be back after a break. 
Stay tuned and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Windsors and Losers is created and produced by us, Eva Walchover and Allie Merriam. Our episode was mixed by Kristen Muller. Give us your feedback at windsorslosers.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.